We're going to look at Psalms, uh, Psalm 9, 10, and possibly 11 tonight, and then we'll take communion together. I love the Psalms, and many of them David had, has written. And again, uh, David is such a, a favorite uh, person of mine in the Bible uh, because he has such a unique uh, testimony, and he has, he's such a unique character. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because very seldom, I, I don't know why I keep mentioning this when, at times when I'm sharing on Psalms, but I see David as this really incredibly complex fellow because he's, he's, a, he's, he's a warrior. He's a warrior. I mean, even from his young teenage years, he, he fought Goliath. And then from then on, it was just a, a, a career of campaigns and battles until he was too old to go out and to come in. But not only was he a warrior and a very well-respected warrior, but David was an artist. And when I say that, he was a worshiper. And I should say he was a worshiper rather than an artist. But what I mean by that is he was a songwriter. He was a very gifted man. He played the guitar, which I think is really cool. Um, and so David was just one of these multi-faceted um, guys because you usually don't see that. Usually the guys who are big in battles and notorious in battle are the big guys who, you know, got a big wart on their face and they got all the coat, the mail on their thing, or, you know, just this auric-looking kind of creature. And yet David, I don't think he was that way at all. He's probably a good-looking man, probably a redhead. And uh, he wasn't that way at all, but yet he was very skilled in battle and also very skilled. The Lord had anointed him. And, and I think it's so important, too, because of the things that he has gone through in his life for us to learn from them, especially men today, because of all the things that men are struggling with. David is such a wonderful character to study in First and Second Samuel because of those failures of his. And yet, in spite of, um, you know, I could ask in, in any room full of men, I could ask how many have committed adultery. And if they were honest, maybe one guy would raise his hand, maybe, hopefully none. But even if they did, most of them, all of us, have at one time in our heads done that, right? But look what David did. He not only did the act, but he also murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And most of us haven't murdered anybody. Anybody in here murdered? Feel free. You know, it's just a safe spot. It's a safe place. Margot, have you killed anybody? Only two people? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so, you know, none of us have never murdered anybody, at least not physically, but David has done both of those things. And so, Take great encouragement from that, especially you guys, because at the end of his life and throughout after this issue in David's life, God loves David, and he continued to write some of the most awesome psalms we have in the Bible, and God forgave him. But there were consequences, weren't there? His firstborn from Bathsheba was taken from him, and also the sword never departed from his house. He constantly had problems in his home with his sons, with you know uh, his firstborn son, as well as... Um, Absalom and his daughter Tamar, who was raped by another one of his sons. It was just a complete disaster, and, and his home was a mess. And probably David felt like he didn't have any strength to really rebuke his sons for what they did, because there's no mention of it really in the Bible, of them, him really stepping in and saying, son, what you did is wrong, and here's what you got to do to make restitution. Or to bring the law upon him and say, son, because you've done this, this is what the law dictates. You have to die. But David, remember, 
He was guilty of those very same things and even worse. And what did Nathan the prophet say to him under the influence of the Spirit of God? He says, David, you will not die, but you've given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And the sword will never depart from your house. And so there was consequences. His witness was tarnished and destroyed for a time, and it took a while for that to build. And so David is one of those characters that I love. So let's get into uh, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 and 11. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are what they call an acrostic. And in the um, Septuagint, which is a very fancy word, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And um, because we know that the New Testament was written in Greek, uh, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and at some point someone decided to uh, take those Hebrew scriptures and convert those or translate those to Greek. And so that's what the Septuagint is. Septuagint means literally seven gentlemen and 70 gentlemen, and that's the, the number of men that actually were in the process of translating the Hebrew into the Greek. That's why they call it Sep for seven Septuagint is gents or gentlemen, so the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, these two psalms are one complete psalm, and every other stanza in here is, a, is, a, is another Hebrew letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it goes off with the Aleph, or I'm sorry, not the Aleph, whatever the first letter is of the Hebrew alphabet. I don't even know what it is, but it'll start with the A, for instance, and then the B. And so every other um, uh, stanza will start with another consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But we have it in two separate uh, in our translation, so we'll just read it as such. But I just mentioned that to you for your own edification. But let's look at uh, chapter 9. It says, A prayer and thanksgiving for uh, the Lord's righteous judgments. And it says, To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. And it makes you wonder what David was going through when he wrote this. Don't know exactly the time frame that he, was, that he wrote this. But a lot of times... Um, and this was true in the in the middle uh, middle ages too. They would take popular songs um, of the day and they would um, put new lyrics to them and create a brand new song. But the tune itself would be uh, very well known to everybody in the area. And so this is one of those things where David had the song, the the actual words to the song, but the melody to this song because it is a song. It was. A melody that everyone in the in, at his time were comfortable with, and they knew that that tune, and so they could actually sing this psalm when they were together. So it's a, a prayer and, and and thanksgiving for the Lord's righteous judgments, and I love the idea of thanksgiving. One of the things I want to be more than anything is just a person who is thankful, don't you? Just to be a thankful person, it's so good to give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks unto the Lord for His. His, uh, he is good, and his mercy endures forever. So let's read it. It says, and, and let's read it straight through, and then we'll come back to it. It says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne, judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. 
but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble or the afflicted. Have mercy on me, O Lord, and consider my trouble from those who hate me. Who, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, and in the net they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Selah. Selah. And so here David is just giving thanks um, for his righteous judgments. And so back at verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. It's important to pray to praise the Lord. You know, sometimes I can be half-hearted in my praise to the Lord. I can um, not have my whole heart in, in, involved in things. Have you ever found yourself just kind of like halfway there? You're not quite there yet. And yet David, his, his thing is, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. To praise the Lord with your whole heart, what does that mean? You know, just to everything about you, everything you've experienced, everything that you're going through, to learn to give praise with your whole heart. To really consider all the blessings that God has given and to give him your undivided attention, to give him your whole heart. Notice what he says, I will tell of all your marvelous works. And there's the witness, right? Because when, when God does things for you, what do you do with those things? Do you hide them within yourself and kind of put them in a notebook and never, let, and never bring it out again? And sometimes people do that. But I would encourage you to, whatever the Lord shows you, whatever neat thing that he does, and some little tidbit, share that truth. Share it with someone else and let other people be blessed as you were blessed. And I will tell of all your marvelous works. It reminds me, doesn't it, you, of, you know, um, in Psalm 1 where it says, um, uh, you know, um, what does it say? Let me bring it up. It, it, it's, uh, it, it reminds me. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But notice, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And here's the verse. He shall be like a tree. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. And here it is again. Whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. And see, that's really what it's all about, is uh, what God does in you. You're like a tree, and you're soaking up the water and all the nutrients. And as you're in the Word, that's what's happening. God is enriching you. He's building you up. And then we take that, those riches that God has given to us, and, and, and as the fruit begins to show, that is our witness. Remember Jesus said in John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. And how we need to abide in him, for the branch can't live apart from the vine. It's so true. We need to be abiding in him. That means spending time with him. And if we love him, are we going to spend time with him? It's so easy to get busy. I would encourage you just to 
make a point of, of blocking out time, whether it's in the morning, in the afternoon, or the day, or the evening, block out the time. Get alone with the Lord. You need that. You need that. Going on in verse 2, he says, I'll be glad and rejoice in you. There's no one more, no one like the Lord than to, to rejoice in him for all that he has done. He says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Not almost o- 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 low, it's almost high. And it kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? As far as, the, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, says the Lord. So are my ways above your ways. And that's what the Lord, and so we sing to him, O Most High. He is Most High, the Most High. And when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. And who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand before this great king? Is there anyone who can stand before God? in his own bravado, in his own strength? Is there anyone that can stand before the Lord and say, I've done it by my own work. Nothing we do is of our own. Even our very breath is a gift from God. The very next breath you breathe is a gift that he has given to you. What grace, what wonderful things that God has given to us. So we ought to give thanks. I love that. He says, but they shall fall and perish at your presence. And ultimately that is going to be the, f- the fare of the wicked they will all fall. You know, it's easy to get discouraged today when you watch the news and you see so many things going on. It's, it's very easy to get discouraged. But don't be discouraged. Jesus said there's the, these times that we live in are going to be this way. It's not going to be easy. Things are going to become more difficult. And thankfully, we live in a country where the persecution really hasn't ramped up. But there may come a time where it does. And see, that's why we need to take these times like this where we have freedom and we have grace to to gather together. It's easy, and I do it. I take it for granted because it's all I've ever known. I've never known anything different, and it's just it's easy to take things for granted. But try to be thankful and to realize what some people, what you have that most people in the world do not. And I think a mission trip really helps kind of bring that into alignment because you go over to other countries and you realize, wow, they don't have the freedoms that we do. they got to really be quiet when they're worshiping. You know, they can't, um, they don't have the freedom to, to gather together like we do, and it's harder. So we really are very blessed people, and we, have, we shouldn't feel guilty of that either. Never feel guilty for living in America. God placed us here. You had nothing to do with it, by the way. You were born, and you showed up. Right, So there's nothing you could do. You, you were brought into this place by God's divine time. And here we are. And we are brought up in this place. So, so thankful for it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Amen. But notice, he goes on, he says, You have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness, and God is only righteous. He is never the opposite. He is a righteous and holy God. And you have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. You have rebuked the nations. And you see, God has the right to do that by reason simply of creation. He has the right to bless or to curse nations. 
and individuals. He has that right if that person does not change. If that nation doesn't repent of its sins, God has a right to judge them. Isn't that what it says? You have rebuked the nations. He has, and he will continue to do so. Because in Psalm 24, what does it say for us? In Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So it belongs to him, the earth, and all of its fullness, and all those who dwell therein. That means everything. And he not only owns the earth, but he owns all of creation, all of the stars and all of the other things that scientists haven't even discovered yet. He made those things. And have you ever seen, the? the, there's a, a little documentary called The Privileged Planet. Anybody see The Privileged Planet? Maybe one Friday night or something we'll play it here. It's really fascinating, but it just it's it's a bunch of scientists. Some of them create you know really uh, Christian science, not Christian science, but uh, Christian people who are also scientists and um, and also some uh, scientists who aren't born again. They they show the the size of the Earth in just a sliver of the Milky Way galaxy, and they 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 have it out in front of you like this where you can see the Earth and it's this big around. You can see it. And then it zooms out, and it keeps zooming out into this little strip of light. Uh, and you get out to the Milky Way, and you see this little, it's like a, a grain of sand. And then right through that grain of sand, right through that Milky Way band, just one small band of just our galaxy, there's thousands, millions more. But just that one little thing, there's a ray of light going right through that little strip. And guess where Earth is? Right in the middle of that light strip where the sun comes in. It's, it's fascinating. It makes you feel very small. And it's a really good thing because you realize, God, if you've, there's nothing by accident. You put us any closer to the sun, we'd burn any further away, we'd freeze to death. But optimal for life is planet Earth. And that's why they call it a privileged planet because everything is just right for, for life to occur and to be sustained. And that's what I love about the Lord. He knows what he's doing. The scientists don't know anything. They know very little. Compare that to the the knowledge of God. Omniscience is awesome because he knows all things. He could probably tell them, you know, um, all kinds of things. So we'll just forget that. But notice he says, you have destroyed the wicked and you have blotted out their name forever. You know, this idea of blotting out is very interesting. Blotting out. You remember in um, Exodus chapter 32... There was a time when the children of Israel, while Moses was up on the top of the mountain receiving the law from God, that down in the valley, the people, having just come out of Egypt and still struggling with idolatry, and it's all they've ever known, they've seen it in Egypt, so it's no surprise that they're worshiping a golden calf there at the bottom of the hill while Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And you remember what happens. He comes down and and he sees what's going on. And um, he drops the ta- tables. He just breaks them. And, um, you know, he, he approaches Aaron, and Aaron says, you know, we took off all of our earrings, took the gold, put it in the fire, and out popped a calf. I mean, just the language is almost like he's just kind of being a scapegoat. <laughs> but, but another area of the Scripture says he carved it. He, sh- he shaped that, that golden calf. So he's kind of busted, isn't he? Yeah. So... Um, yeah, the council got him on that one. But, but after that, 
God was just going to wipe them out. God was just going to wipe them out. And it says in verse 25 of Exodus 32, it says, When Moses saw it, the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to, to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men that day fell. They passed away. And then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. And it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and says, Oh, these people have committed a great sin, Lord, and they've made themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive them. Notice the heart of this. This is the verse right here, verse 32. Notice the heart of Moses. And I believe that this may have been one of the reasons why God even allowed this, to expose Moses' heart and how good it was. This is very Christ-like. In fact, it's a foreshadowing, really, of the very heart of God that, he, that Jesus would demonstrate on the cross. He said to God, he says, Yet now, if you will forgive, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. We believe that the book that he's referring to is the book of life. There are plenty of scriptures that talk about the book of life and people being blotted out of that book. I believe, based on what I've read in the scripture, I believe that when every person is born, they are written in this book of life. As soon as a child is conceived, and perhaps even before, because didn't the Lord say to Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you? So it's very possible that before, uh, in God's uh, all-knowingness, uh, in the eons before even creation began, the Lord may have had already the, the book already written, knowing exactly who would come and when they would come, their birth date, what they were going to do, his plan for their life. But then there comes a time as the person is born and they live their life and they're accountable for that life. There comes a time when they're at the end of their life and they have to make a decision sometime in that short frame of life to make a decision for Christ. And I believe only then, in fact, in Revelation it says that people can be blotted out of the book of life. At the end, if their, their names are blotted out, if their names are not written there or if they're blotted out, they won't be in heaven. And that's a horrible tragedy, but... He says, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. You've destroyed the wicked. See, God has, he knows what he's doing, and we can trust him. We can trust him, and thank God that your name is written in the book of life, amen? Because uh, if you're here tonight, chances are your name, I'm looking at all of you, and I know you all of you pretty well, relatively well, and so I know that your names are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of, of life. To me, that is the greatest book you could be in. Who cares about the phone book? Who cares about the yearbook? Who cares about the who's who book? I'm in God's book. That's all that matters to me. And he says, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. Notice, his throne endures forever. No one can topple him from his throne. His throne is set in heaven. That means that it is, the foundation is sure. There's nothing that can alter him or his throne. 
his, his counsels, his thoughts are stable. And he has prepared his throne for judgment. We looked at that this morning. How many of you were here this morning for the Sunday morning service? Raise your hand if you were here. Yeah, you remember, we looked at that, the great white throne judgment. God has prepared his throne for judgment. There's coming a time. And I'm so glad that none of us will be at that great white throne judgment. And as Paul would say, it's the love of God that constrains me because I don't want to see anybody standing before that throne because anyone who comes to that throne at that time is damned. There's no escaping it. There's no bringing up a prosecutor. You can't bring, you know, a, a fancy a lawyer or a group of lawyers and say, and, and on your behalf and say, well, he did sin, but, you know, the devil made him do it. God's going to say, no, he liked it. He wanted to do it. The devil had nothing to do with it. That was just his flesh. There's no other attorney except for Jesus. Isn't that what the Bible says? That he is our attorney. He is our, the one who goes before us and can say, not only do I believe the charges against all these people, but I've also paid the price. I've paid the bond. Instead of them going to jail and dying there, I'll take the price. And the price was his own blood on the cross. He has prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall, verse 8, judge the world in righteousness. He shall judge the world in righteousness. You know, he is a God of righteousness. There is no, the Bible says there's no variableness or shadow of turning with him, and that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I love that. Don't you get excited about light and, and to think that there is this one who is so pure and so holy? I don't know about you, but I, I love to really think about that because we live in an unholy world. We live in an unholy culture. And I find even in my own thoughts, they can be so unholy at times. And to dwell on his holiness. I love that song, when I dwell on your holiness. When I dwell on your holiness, may we do it more often to dwell on his holiness. And he shall administer, at the end of verse 8 there, he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. He always loves the oppressed. God is a refuge for the fatherless, the widow, and, and those who are oppressed. Not for the great kings and the great people standing in big buildings and, and very powerful in the world's eyes. He loves those people, don't get me wrong, but God has a special place in his heart for the underdog, for the refuge or for those who are uh, the fatherless and the widows and those who are oppressed wrongfully. He is, what is that song we sing? The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. That is such a wonderful thing to consider. Do you run to the Lord when you're in trouble? You know, sometimes it's really good when you're going through something to just get alone, to run into your room when nobody's home. Or if somebody's home, just go into your room and shut the door. Or lock the door if you have to. If you've got a, a, a gaggle of kids, sometimes you've got to lock the door. And go in there for ten minutes and just cry your heart out to God. Cry out to him what great security, what great blessing there is in that. And he goes on in verse 10, he says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways do what? Acknowledge him, and then he will direct your paths. He will direct your path. 
And I love this word know because in the Hebrew, this word literally means to know by experience. It could be very well a, a counterpart, a, a word that's very similar to the word in, in, in the Greek, gnosko. We, we've heard of that word on Sunday morning a number of times. It's the kind of knowledge that's experiential. It's the kind of knowledge that a husband would have of a wife and a wife would have of a husband. It's an intimacy. It's, a, it's an experiential knowledge, one that grows with time. And this word right here is in the Hebrew, but it means exactly the same thing. It's really wonderful. And those who know your name, to know his name, to know it more than just, oh, I know Jesus. You know, I know his name. But the more we walk with him, the greater we know him. The more we walk with him, the greater experience we gain as we walk, as we experience life, as he's convicting us, as he's encouraging us, as he's loving on us, as he's directing us. We get to know him in this way. And the more we, and the longer we're in it, the longer we know him. And pretty soon we, we know him in that way. We know him in an intimate way. And we know him. He says, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. See, the Lord will never forsake you, even to the end of the age. Isn't that what he said to the disciples in Matthew 28? He says to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. There's the command. And with the command is what? The enablement. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And here it is. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. That was the name that God spoke of himself when he spoke to Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, it's the one we know so much, it's on all of our Christmas cards. He told to the king Ahaz, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the virgin shall conceive. Not a virgin, but the virgin. That's a a definite article. That means there's one person that God is thinking about. And who is it? It's Mary. It's Mary. 700 years before she was even born. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. I'm so glad he's with us, because if he was apart from me, and if he was apart from us, we would be in bad trouble. You know, sometimes I think we, we take that for granted. We don't understand the presence of the Spirit of God, even in the world that we live in right now. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? And I hope we don't dwell on this too much, because it'll bum you out. But have you ever considered what this world's going to be like the day after the rapture, when the light is gone? Right now, the world doesn't understand, but there's lights all around them, lights all around in their communities, believers like you and I. We're all mixed in with this great menagerie, and we're all mixed up together, and we are those lights. And can you imagine the day after the rapture, and there's no light at all? Some will rejoice. Those whose hearts have been so seared and their, 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 their heart is bent on hating God. There are people like that, and that's scary. People actually hate God. And then there's another group of people who are kind of caught in the middle. They haven't given their heart to the Lord, but they're kind of on the fence. And now those are the people that I'm more concerned about. Because the people who are, um, hate God, they're like, thank God these people are out of our hair. Now we can progress with our, our socialist agenda. 
And believe me, when, when, the, when, when, when we're removed, the legislation that's going to happen is going to be incredible. And that's when the Antichrist is going to rise up. Maybe he will tell everybody where we're at. Maybe he'll lie to them and say, I know what happened to those people. And the Bible says that he's going to be able to do signs and wonders among those people. And think about this. Can you imagine? He comes up to the platform on CNN is viewing and there showing. And he's like, yeah, I know where they went. And I'll prove it. I'll prove it because I know where they went. God took them away for judgment. They were what it was getting in the way of this one world government. We want to, we the people. We are the world. We are the children. You know, and, and he's going to say, they were the ones that were keeping it from happening. And now God, just like a dog would, would, would get out of the water and shake his body and flip the water all over the place, so are they. They're flipped off and they're off and they're in judgment. They're taken off to judgment. Now we can continue with our godly plan. And people are going to go. And then he'll go, I'll prove it. He'll call down fire. He'll do some miracle. And their jaws are going to hit the ground. And it's going to be so easy for him to have them right here. Because people are going to be shaken up. They're going to want answers. And he's going to have the power. And he's going to show them signs and wonders. And probably share and lie to them about where these people have gone. There's got to be an explanation. Yeah, they've been taken away for judgment because they've been bad. They've been, they've been resisting what we've been wanting to do for so long. For this one world government. How did I get on that? But verse 13. No, 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Wow. We're, we're kind of... Hmm. When he avenges... Uh, sorry, verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. If you come to Israel with us, we're going to go to Zion. Zion is a, a mountain range. Moriah is part of, of that mountain range. And Zion is where David uh, captured that, that city, that Jebusite city, which we know to be Jerusalem. And Joab was one of the men. His brother, is, uh, his nephew, actually was the one who climbed up through a tunnel and found a way to get in without, um, without being noticed. And uh, David gave to him, um, uh, I think, a, a wife or something like that. I forget exactly what it was. But um, anyway, you're going to go and you're going to see Zion. They, they just uncovered it in the last 10 years. When I was there in 2011, they had just scraped, they had just started excavating that area right to the south, uh, southwest corner of, southeast corner of the Temple Mount. And now it's completely excavated. Zion, I'm looking forward to seeing that. But he says, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declares deeds among the people, and when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. And isn't that just so tender of the Lord? Like a good shepherd, he is like that. He is, he's tender-hearted. He, know, he doesn't forget the cry of the humble. And that's why, for those of you who are struggling and feeling kind of low and feeling like you've got nothing to offer and you're feeling like maybe you've lost your job and, you know, your dog bit you and then your wife is angry with you and your car doesn't start, you know, it's just one of those bad days. (laughs) The Lord does not forget the cry of the humble. And he goes on in verse 13, Have mercy on me, O God. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. And David had many enemies, especially after the thing with Bathsheba. You remember um, uh, uh, Ahithophel, 
um, I think that was his name. He was a, um, a grandfather of Bathsheba. He was a, a major conspirator in David's life and creating a lot of problems for David. And David had a lot of enemies. And so he was very right to say, Lord, consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, from the gates of Sheol, that I may uh, tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. And the nations, they've sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. And that is just the irony of those who are wicked. I always enjoy, uh, and probably shouldn't enjoy it too much, but I always enjoy when somebody has laid a net, and, and it could be anything. It could be somebody has something bent towards somebody, and they have really an evil heart. And, you know, like, uh, like Haman, remember what, what he did to Mordecai? He built the, those gallows, literally a spire, a big spear that's up in the sky that, you know, goes up, and they were just going to climb up a ladder or whatever and put him on the top and impale him and just let him slide down that thing. That's, that's what was going to happen to Mordecai. That's what Haman wanted to do to Mordecai. And yet, for all of his cunning, who was it that hung on, those, on that spire? It was Haman. It was Haman. But the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. And the wickedness, the wicked is ensnared in the work of his own hands. Selah. And you know, um, and so, and then it goes on. Let's just finish it here and then we'll, uh, we'll take communion together. It says, the wicked shall be turned into hell, literally into Sheol, which is the, the Jewish term for Hades, really. Uh, Sheol was called the grave, and uh, the Greeks would call it Hades, but it was the Jewish way of thinking of the same place. It's the abode of the wicked dead. Um, There's a lot to that, actually, um, but uh, that's kind of the gist of it. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And I love this. Here's the exhortation, really. Arise, O God, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear that the nations may know themselves to be but men, to be but men. And that's really all there are. You know, the Bible says that, uh, and I think it's in Isaiah, it says the nations are like a drop in the bucket, meaning a drop in the bucket is very insignificant, and see, you and I, when we think of Russia and, and Iran and the saber-rattling that's going on in the Middle East, we tend to get all upset and a little uptight about it, a little tense. But God says, you know what, they're nothing. Their rulers are nothing. In a moment, I could make... I mean, look what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of his game, standing there in, in Babylon, upon the 60-foot walls or whatever they were, up there on the top, and looking around at this beautiful place. Look what I have done boasting of himself, full of himself. And the Lord struck him with madness. Literally, he lost his mind for seven years, crawling around on the dew of the earth. His nails were growing and his hair was growing. And, you know, he looked like, you know, Gollum. (laughs) By the end of the seven years, he probably looked like Gollum. God was able to take this man and his at the height of his power, at the height of his game, and the, the prime of his life, and just says, 
You're done for now. That's scary, isn't it? See, God is able to do that. Let's finish this uh, tonight with with, uh, Psalm 2. If you could turn there and just turn to Psalm 2. In relation to this, Psalm 2 is a great uh, messianic psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves. Notice, they set themselves. And, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah, is literally what it means there, against Jehovah and his anointed. You know what the anointed is? The Mashiach Nagid. That's what that is. His anointed is Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Jesus, the anointed, that's what it means. The word anointed, I'm not sure if, it's, if it may be this one, but in, in, other, in other areas of the scripture, the anointed is the Messiah. So we got the Trinity here. So the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and we see this as a prophecy of things to come at the end of the great tribulation period. We can see it right here in this psalm. And the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah. What a foolish errand to do. What a fool's errand to do, to be against Jehovah and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, saying, and here's what they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens is going to laugh. He's going to laugh. And he will have them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. And notice. And all of that. Yet I have set my king. God the father says. On my holy hill of Zion. And God declares. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for me, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to get. He is going to inherit us. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to inherit the church. What a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing for us. Hopefully it's as beautiful for him. And I believe it is. You know why? Because he sees his likeness when he sees us. Because of the blood, his blood upon us. He sees our likeness, or I'm sorry, he sees his likeness upon us, and therefore we are beautiful in his sight. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled just a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's, um, let's take communion together. I'm just going to lead a song, and uh, while we're doing that, uh, feel free to come on up and grab the communion elements and bring them back, and we'll, we'll uh, take them together and we'll pray, okay?